Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. So today's episode features two guests, Thomas Sinclair and Ben Kenward. So Thomas is a philosopher. He's a fellow and tutor at Wadham College, Oxford, and an associate professor of philosophy at Oxford's Faculty of Philosophy, with research interests in moral and political philosophy. And Ben is a senior lecturer in psychology at Oxford Brookes University, with research focusing on ecological psychology, mainly examining environmental activism, such as the Extinction Rebellion movement, of which both he and Thomas are a part. And indeed, the episode that we have today focuses on robot ethics, AI ethics, and how it may provide an impediment or a bar to progress on environmental activism. So it's an interesting argument. It comes from a paper that was recently co-authored by Ben and Thomas, and so I hope you enjoy this episode. Now before I hand over to the conversation that I had with Ben and Thomas, let me just first say, as per usual, that if you like this podcast, please share the word, review it on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever platform you happen to prefer, and that would be most appreciated. So thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so look, lots of people are worried about the ethics of AI, and one particular area of concern is whether we should program machines to follow existing normative or moral principles or values when making decisions. Uh, some people think this would be a big mistake. Others think that it's practically essential. So Ben and Tom, you've recently co-authored a paper that looks at this topic from, I guess, a slightly different angle. Specifically, you argue that it would be a mistake to program machines to follow existing human moral consensus around values because this would be an impediment to moral progress. And you also add to this the claim that moral progress is essential if we're going to address the ongoing environmental crisis. So I want to try and unpack the argument from this paper in our conversation today. And I'll just start with an obvious definitional question, since it's central to the argument of the paper. What is a moral value? What's the phenomenon we're talking about here? In the paper, we define morality as a set of values in light of which those endorsing the values regard some types of actions as good, that's to say, to be striven after, and others as bad, that's to say, to be avoided. But this definition might not be very illuminating because, of course, there are non-moral values that also lead the people endorsing them to aim at some actions and avoid others. So that's a bit loose. Uh, And the definition doesn't tell you what a value is at all. Um, So it might be more helpful to say something like this, to endorse a value is to be disposed to look positively on some actions and states of the world and to look negatively on others, where looking positively involves one characteristic and familiar set of desires and emotions and dispositions, and looking negatively involves another characteristic set of emotions and dispositions and desires. And then we might say moral values in particular, as contrasted with other values, such as aesthetic values or Um, for example, um, are bound up with a distinctive subset of those dispositions. So dispositions to regard certain acts as especially faulty and to be ready to hold people account in certain ways for performing them, for example, by blaming them or being angry with them. So that's probably a slightly more illuminating way of describing moral values. And I I would just add that um, as a psychologist, uh, my uh, my definitions tend to come from people themselves. So I, I see morality to a large extent as being what people say it is what lay people say it is but the problem is people can't agree 
So um, whether something is a moral question or whether it isn't, and uh, as psychologists can't even agree. So, so for example, a classic issue is what's the distinction between morality and social convention, and uh, that plays out differently in different cultures. Uh, and and so you have psychologists that tend to study like Western cultures coming to different conclusions about what morality is compared to people who study Eastern cultures. So I, I don't I think it's really hard to give a a really um, spot on definition that always works for what morality is or what a moral value is. Okay, I mean, that I don't want to get maybe too bogged down in this definitional question, but it does raise the, the way in which you've characterized it there does raise one question for me. Is it true at all that there's certain like, you know, paradigm cases of moral values that most cultures would agree on that are universal? Um, and then there's kind of periphery of more controversial cases, or can we not even say that? I think we can say that. Okay, so so cases like murder or something or killing would be paradigm cases, and then there's, you know, maybe there's certain kinds of like dietary norms or something that or hygiene norms that in some <laughs> cultures are moralized and but aren't in other cultures. Yeah, massively moralized in in, in some cultures, and the anthropologists can't can't agree either about. Uh, you know, to what extent some of these core things are um, uh, really core to, to, to all, all cultures. So, uh, uh, but I, I don't think this definitional question is like really crucial for, to, 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 to get totally straight for, for the purposes of our arguments. Uh, I mean, one of the main points of our paper is, is, is that our arguments hold even if you just focus on the subsets of things uh, that, that almost everyone can agree on. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, I mean, let's go on to the next sort of definitional question because this is about AI or machines specifically. So, like, what would be the definition of a moral AI or a moral machine? Well, so in the article, we, we, we make the definition of a moral machine parasitic on the definition of, um, of, of morality that we've given already. So we say that it's a, it's a machine that engages in computational operations which involve representations of values that are intended to reflect morality in order to yield moral behavior either on the machine's own part or on the part of the agents they guide. But that, that, that sounds quite convoluted and difficult to understand. The basic idea is that some machines are designed to perform the role of a moral reasoner, an agent that acts at least in part on the basis of an understanding of moral values. So for example, a moral machine might assign physical harm to humans really big negative weight in its calculations of the means to some goal that it's been assigned so that it avoids what an amoral machine would treat as the best means to that goal because that means involves physically harming somebody say so uh, there's a nice example of this my my dad really liked this anecdote about um some churchyard and some church was trying to work out how to um uh, efficiently allocate space for graves um and they they got some they got some so computer technology in in to help them do it and um it kind of they ran some algorithms or something and it, it returned the result that they could uh they could you know uh quadruple the number of graves that they had and they were all amazed and they thought this was wonderful but then it transpired that um the solution was to have them all vertical so all the graves all the people standing up in their graves um and so you might think a, a moral machine would be one which would have encoded in it the understanding that that's not an acceptable way for for for, for dead people to be arranged i mean this is you know it's not especially a, a moral value perhaps but the basic idea is that um it would perform the calculations it was assigned to perform 
within the bounds of um, representations of moral values, uh, which other machines might not. Yeah, I, I, th I think that idea of representation of values seems particularly crucial to the mm. definition because I know I can't remember the person who wrote this paper, but there was a paper years ago by somebody in the kind of philosophy of technology literature who said, you know, a lot of technology is designed with values embedded in it, right? Mm. An ATM machine, you could argue, has a kind of morality to it. it. It responds to or respects human rules about who owns what money or something like mm -hmm. that and gives mm -hmm. the money back to them. Mm -hmm. But it's not acting upon a representation of a moral value around property ownership. Yeah, precisely. I'd, I'd like to give a, a further example that, that's actually uh, qu quite um, relevant because the, the, the United Kingdom government has, has recently released a, a white paper saying it wants to get planning decisions uh, to be a lot, a lot more computerized and, and, and automated. So that's exactly the kind of arena where you have different kinds of uh, moral values that tend to conflict with, with one another. So, for example, building uh, activities, building houses emits an awful lot of CO2. So that's uh, and CO2 is, is bad because it leads to climate change. So that's a moral issue. Then there are other moral issues that are involved, such as the fact that there are people without houses who need houses to live in. So any any system that's going to make a, a decision about whether um, a planning should be recommended to be given or recommended to be to, to not be given to a particular project, if, if it's going to take all those different things into account and weigh them up against each other, that's that's definitely a moral machine. And in, in, in my opinion, because because it's 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 making the calculations on the basis and, and of, of these different moral values and 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 implicitly making priorities amongst them by by doing so. But I'd just like to add another thing as well, which is I think there's another definition of what's a, mo a moral machine, which is a completely different definition, and it's something that we also need because because what we're very focused on in our in our work is how people are going to respond to moral machines. So another way of thinking about what a a a, a moral machine is is if you tell someone that this machine is making a moral decision, and and if they and if they tend to agree, yeah, okay, that's a a, a moral decision, then they're cognitive apparatus that that is uh, designed for for processing moral decisions might start to be engaged so irrespective of the actual um, machinery that's involved if 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 a decision has come from a machine and it's presented to humans as being in some way moral i think that also uh, make makes makes it uh, relevant in this case yeah i mean that's interesting to me and it also strikes me that you know, the fuzziness, let's say, in the concept of moral value will probably necessarily affect, to some extent, our definition or characterization of, of what counts as a moral machine. And that, so, that, I mean, that was my question, and you've kind of answered it already, is can you point to examples of current machines or AIs that fit the definition of, of a moral machine? And you've given this example of the, the property, the housing algorithm. Are there other yeah, examples? Planning, planning. planning algorithm, sorry. Are there other examples yeah. out there that we could point to? I mean, autonomous uh, machines like self-driving cars is, is the obvious one that everyone always talks about. And, and they obviously have to make such trade-offs between uh, different kinds of values as well, like the people inside the car versus the people out, uh, in, inside versus outside the car, etc. Okay. Um, so one of the things you point out in the paper, and this is the kind of crux or the motivation for the argument in the paper is that there's a 
a major engineering challenge when it comes to designing moral machines, which is, you know, what values does the machine adopt or respond to? What moral reasons or moral principles does it respond to? I've heard this problem discussed in other contexts as like the alignment problem. And uh, maybe that that's a concept that arises specifically in relation to a debate around super intelligent machines and existential risk. And I tend to see it's less employed in relation to current kinds of examples of autonomous technology. But it seems like the same basic issue is that you, you want the machine to align with a set of values. Yeah. But the challenge then is switch values, right? Yeah, that's right. So the basic problem that we describe in the paper is that there's no account of moral values that's both comprehensive enough to cover all the decisions that a moral machine might be designed to address and universally accepted. So it's a familiar thought that the particular values around which people organize their responses and practices, so blame, guilt, shame and all of that, um, they vary from culture to culture at least. And so someone might propose using some set of values with a bit more of a claim to universal acceptance, such as human rights. But even if we set aside the fact that human rights themselves may be more controversial than their advocates hope, uh, we then face this problem that they're not comprehensive. They don't give us much guidance in many situations that are nevertheless what you might think of as morally freighted. So, for example, human rights don't tell you how the self-driving car that Ben mentioned should weigh the lives of its passengers against the lives of the pedestrians or how we should distribute scarce medical resources among people suffering from different diseases, for example. So either you get the you get more specific detailed account of the values to program, but then it's going to be uh, it's it's not going to be universally accepted or you go for something closer to universal acceptance, but then you don't get the comprehensiveness that would allow you to to tell the machine or to, to have the machine make the decisions on the in the kinds of situations it's going to face. Yeah, and I mean, as a coming from a philosophical background, you know this problem well, which is that you know there's, there's pretty much no moral principle that a philosopher hasn't invented some kind of counterexample <laughs> to, right? As, as Indeed. Problematic, right? Yeah, and so that, that's kind of the core theoretical problem here, really. Um, so, how do engineers solve this challenge in practice? They're, they're not, I suspect, they're not engaging with the. Um, philosophical literature to f try and find the universal moral principles that are, <laughs> you know, completely uh, um, avoid all possible counterexamples or uh, objections. So what are they doing? They might be, but as, as you said, they're, they're not going to find any such thing. I mean, I think you have to give them credit. And there's a lot of engineers doing a lot, an awful lot of different things. And uh, I mean, for example, one of the reviewers of our, our paper point, pointed out a, a fascinating um, uh, example of an engineer suggesting that uh, uh, moral machines should themselves be pluralistic in, in the same way that, that, that humans are, like so that you instantiate different sets of competing moral values that within, within um, different algorithms and let them play out amongst one another. So there's all sorts of different things that are being tried. But I, I think a really important thing to focus on here is, is that uh, most of the... Um, people who ultimately would be interested in uh, in, in making uh, moral machines are probably um, engineers employed by large companies so <laughs> they're always going to have their own um, that their, their, their own in, in incentives and, and agendas but the the what you see if you look at the um what's advocated by the the um 
the large uh, organizations that represent uh, engineers, for example, the sort of trade bodies and, and, and so on. They, there are all sorts of documents you can look at. And what they say is what we should try and find is, is consensus. So then you just get straight to the problems uh, that, that, that Tom uh, um, uh, raised already, that the devil is in the details. So, so as a whole, I don't think the engineers have, have great solutions to this I I issue yet, although a lot of different things are being tried. Yeah, I mean, this is, sorry, I'm kind of involved, I have been involved in the past in some of these debates around like European policy around ethics of autonomous vehicles. And this is the, the big challenge is that you can come up with these kind of abstract ethical principles that you think vehicles should follow. And like, maybe there is some sort of consensus in relation to, you know, a general principle, but actually the nitty gritty of how you program that into a machine is the problem. This is this translation gap between the, mm -hmm. the objectives of the policymakers or the company and what actually gets programmed into the machine at the end of the day. And so the engineers have to kind of step into that gap and do something that's concrete and specific. And they're oftentimes not given very specific guidance on that. Um, right. So that seems to be a major, major issue at the moment. But then you talk about the idea that what they're likely to do is to follow the values of their users, their primary users. And, why is that going to be the solution that they're going to follow? And yeah, what's the attraction of that as the solution to this engineering challenge? Well, crudely, I mean, the market, that's the solution the market's going to favor. You know, the, the, the engineers are making these machines to be used by the users. And so they need acceptance from the users and they, the users need to trust the machines to make the decisions they're interested in, in having them make. And so um, if the machines are making decisions that are based on representations of values that align with the the values of their users then the users are more likely to accept the decisions and trust the machines and so they'll be regarded as doing a good job and so the engineers will have you know will be successful i suppose um so that that's that seems the most obvious solution i would have thought and so and um and very few uh, of the producers of the ai in question are going to be motivated to uh, to make them kind of morally educative, I think. Um, and that that problem extends beyond the commercial sphere as well, because I mean, an, an example raised earlier was uh, was the planning regulation the implementation algorithm that that, that that may, I suspect, turn up one day. And uh, that's a, that's more of a political uh, decision. But politicians also, uh, to to a large extent, try and give people uh, what they want, with obviously a whole bunch of other constraints as well. But so and and yeah, I, I think this is a real problem. That this this is really the crux of uh, one of the main cruxes of our argument that mm. uh, moral AI is likely to give people uh, what they want, and what people want is quite problematic because we need moral progress. Right. I mean, we'll talk about why what people want is is problematic in a moment. But I, you might not have an opinion on this but how do you see this like being solved in let's say the commercial sphere do, do you imagine it as being like users get to pick their own moral values for their autonomous vehicle you know i i want the <laughs> i want the car to protect me in all circumstances or i want the utilitarian car like is is it going to be customizable in that sense or do you think they'll go for some sort of like guess at what the population view is or do you have any thoughts on that I would have thought there's going to be a complex interplay between politics, consumers, markets, um, 
and and market actors. So, I mean, on the one hand, I, I think it's very unlikely that people are going to uh, get to select the morality of their car. But if there were a market um, which just allowed any any set of ethics, as it were, to be marketed, then just as we've seen SUVs take over the market, even though they're manifestly much, much more dangerous for people who aren't in the cars, um, because, or at least in part, because they've been marketed as as protecting the passengers of those cars um, to a greater degree than and, than less tank-like things. Um, so, if, if there were a, an open market in in ethics, I guess you would probably expect to see um, aut- autonomous cars prevail, which which gave their users, their drivers, and their passengers like, infinite weight as compared with the um, with pedestrians and others. But I would have thought that you know that insofar as um regulators are going to have some control here they're not going to allow that kind of um they're they're probably going to put in place regulations which prevent that kind of waiting um but exactly how it cashes out is going to be the result of all sorts of pressures um not all of which are focused on getting the ethics right as it were so my my preference would be for regulation to come from deliberative democracy because there's uh, there's a fair amount of uh, precedent for showing that although as i've already claimed if we just give people what they what they want which uh, as a population as a whole which is a form of democracy that tends to be quite problematic what they end up wanting but if you engage more deliberative democracy processes where people uh, are, are encouraged to reflect more, take in more information from experts more than, than, than they might otherwise have done, then you can end up with uh, majorities or consensuses emerging, which which are better in, in the sense that they're more progressive. Yeah, we might circle back to that actually towards the end anyway, when we kind of run through the full argument. I mean, you mentioned there that giving people what they want is going to exaggerate or lead to problems uh, what kind of problems are these likely to be and you know what's the evidence for suggesting that moral machines moral algorithms whatever can reinforce or compound certain problems so um well it, starting on the assumption that um the immorality that is instantiated is basically giving people what they want um, and, and of course, it, it may not, and we will come come to the encoding of progressive values later, perhaps. But but if you if there's something uh, confirmation bias, which uh, many people have heard of, which is one of the most robust and well and uh, well known uh, biases, which is that people like information which confirms their existing beliefs. People people will prioritise. Um, information that confirms their existing beliefs and they will deprioritize uh, ignore information which doesn't and but this the, these mechanisms go further than just what information you pay attention to it, it also concerns the way that people reason so uh, motivated reasoning is 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 something that that's one of the the, the terms that we use in psychology and that and that that describes when people uh, use their reasoning to 
um, rather than to try and be objective and dispassionate like a, a judge who's trying to find what's you know what's the right the the sort of objective right and wrong in a case more like the lawyer whose whose job it is to argue for a case and um and and try and make the best possible case for that and ignoring evidence that, that, that that's counter to it and um if i may i'll just give a, one of my favorite examples a, 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 a empirical examples that illustrates the these kinds of processes and and and, and it, that's quite striking illustrating how how strong they are so there's there's a paradigm called change blindness uh which is when you get someone to, oh, sorry choice blindness you get someone to make a choice and then you get them to justify their choice afterwards and um you do a little trick so that the original study uh, used something similar to, you know, a sort of dating app or something like that. But they were showing pictures. They, they were showing two pictures to uh, participants and saying, which which of these pictures of another person do, do you fancy most? You know, who do you find most attractive? And so they chose one and then they came back and they give uh, they do a little slate of hand so that slight, so that um, they show the they make it look like they're showing the picture that was chosen but it's actually a different picture that was chosen and then they say explain to me why you chose this picture and obviously in some cases people say well that's wrong i didn't choose that picture i chose the other one but in very many cases what will happen is that the uh the person uh will come up with a explanation for why they chose the uh, the, the picture that they didn't actually choose so so th this is a great example of, of of how if people believe people believe something in this case they've been tricked to believe that they chose something they didn't even trick but now they but now they believe it they'll come up with all kinds of reasons for uh for why that is and and so this this just shows how um susceptible human psychology is to constructing stories that are convenient for them in 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 the here and now and so i think that um and this is the argument that we make that if you give people machines that tell them what they want they will seize on this as as a re reason to keep continuing there's 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 you know that the official government's you know um the official government system had in the in this kind of hypothetical case we've taken where the building regulations is is decisions are determined algorithmically but if if people like them because that they they um maintain that the, the the what people already already like then they'll seize on this as a reason to 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 um can, you know continue liking the things they like that's basically what it boils down to I mean, this is kind of like this is a Jonathan Haidt's idea of that you know most moral reasoning is exposed that you're kind of rationalizing an an implicit value or an implicit judgment as opposed to uh, actually using mm. the reasoning to justify the decision the decision itself, right? Yes, very much so. Okay, so let's then turn to talk about a little bit about moral progress because this is, mm. I guess, another central idea in the argument, just that we need to factor in the idea of moral progress into the, the design of moral machines. So like, what is moral progress? How would you characterize that phenomenon? Well, it's just as hard to formulate a comprehensive and detailed account of moral progress as it is to formulate the right comprehensive and detailed set of moral values with which to program moral machines. So this is, this is quite a big problem for us. If we, if we had, a comprehensive and detailed account of moral progress, then it would be kind of obvious what we should program moral machines 
to do. We should program them with the progressive values. And that's not meant when we say progressive here, we mean, you know, a step forward in the evolution of moral values rather than left wing or right wing or anything like that. So the challenge for engineers would basically have been met already if we had a comprehensive and detailed account of moral progress. Um, but equally, it does seem that there can be such a thing of as moral progress. And we were motivated to write the paper by the thought that moral machines might inhibit that progress. So to get the worry going, we've had to try and articulate some conception of moral progress without presuming to be able to meet the challenge for engineers ourselves. Um, and the way we've done this is to try to identify a case that seems uncontroversially to be one of major moral progress, something that would be pretty terrible to have impeded, and then argue that there's a risk that progress of this sort may indeed be impeded by, by moral machines. Yeah, I mean, let's talk, a bit, let's try and get people on board with this idea of moral progress, because mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there are common examples that are cited in the philosophical literature. I guess yeah. you know, Peter Singer would be famous for his idea of the expanding moral circle as being a, an instance of, of moral progress. And yes. Alan Buchanan and somebody else whose name now escapes me wrote a book a couple of years ago about the idea of moral progress, which had that actually as its central example. So that this is a an instance of moral progress is the fact that, you know, we used to be very kind of local and tribal in our morality, and but now we've expanded the circle of moral concern outwards to post-1945 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's a universal, yeah. all, all humans are, it's not universal in a broader sense, but or in the sense that you might like for the debate about it, the environment, which we'll come back to later, but all humans are at least ostensibly or officially or explicitly included within the circle of moral concern. And so if we agree that that is an instance of moral progress, then it seems like moral progress exists, right? And it's something that we need to care about because we have changed in our moral attitude towards others over time. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're much more um, cautious, actually. We, we, we try yes. to be much more ecumenical than that. So rather than committing to um, specific instances of moral progress of that sort. Um, we, we, we basically, we just want to get going the idea that there can be something that would be pretty uncontroversially moral progress and then run the idea that um, certain mechanisms in, such as moral machines might, uh, might be inhibitors of such progress. So we formulate this minimal principle, which is a, like a, su a sufficient condition of moral progress that we think will be very hard for people to uh, well, we'll be, won't be very controversial and we'll capture the basic idea. Um, and then we just use that. So we, we refrain from pronouncing on particular historical instances in the main. I, I think what's important about our, our principle of moral progress, um, which actually, Tom, do you, like seeing as you, you formulated it, do you want to say what it is? I feel like we <laughs> haven't said what it is. And, yeah, uh... sure, sure. So um, it says that moral progress obtains if the values internal to a morality change in ways that alter participant behavior in ways that substantially reduce the likelihood of catastrophic large-scale suffering without a corresponding increase in human rights violations. So but basically what we're saying here is it's hard to disagree at the very general level that a change as that sort of change would count as moral progress because after all now the risk of catastrophic large-scale suffering has been reduced but not at the cost of human rights. So um, you know it might be that uh, it might be that that doesn't quite capture the underlying idea that there can be cases of uh, moral evolution, evolution in moral values, which are definitely changes for the better. But that's that's the basic idea we're going for. There can be such changes. It doesn't seem like it would be that controversial to think that there could be some such changes. And then given that, 
our interest is in the idea that they might be impeded by certain mechanisms. I think I think one the reason why we believe this works is because what we're what we're starting from the consequences. So so rather than saying here's some principles and we think that ultimately everyone's going to get behind these principles and we're sort of heading in those directions, you know, like for example, expanding the the, the circle of concern to non-human animals that that's rather controversial there's there's right now there's lots of people who who wouldn't ag- agree that the animals should have the the same sorts of rights as 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 humans so so it, it's controversial to what extent that reflects progress or not but if you say we want to end up somewhere and it's totally not controversial that that almost everyone would like it if we end up somewhere where we don't have you know catastrophic as uh, uh, you know death and suffering for example from from um, environmental collapse then everyone can get on board on that and then so we say well what kind of values will lead us to the place where everyone already agrees that we'd like to be yeah and again look maybe there's getting into this debate in too much detail is not necessary but let's let me just try and circle around this minimal principle of mm-hmm. of um, moral progress a little bit so you want to avoid a point discussing or pointing to any particular historical examples of progress. But I mean, the only thing I would say just about the expanding circle of concern, it's not that I want to endorse that view. It's just that these are the kinds of things that people point to as being examples of moral progress. And there are other examples in other societies, like I don't know, the gay rights movement being successful is viewed as a, mm-hmm. an instance of moral progress. So there are, there are changes in moral attitudes and beliefs over time that people in certain societies are seem to view as moral progress yeah and so we need to factor in the idea at least that moral values can shift over time into any discussion of you know what machines should do that they can't be static they can't not allow for progress so that's sort of background intuition here yeah but then the question is okay the, the 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 philosophical challenge is you know what counts as an instance of moral progress because we would look back and say moral attitudes and values changed during the Nazi regime in Germany, but that wasn't an instance of progress. Right? Yeah. I think we could all agree that was the opposite <laughs> of moral progress, right? So not yeah. all changes count as moral progress. But to, to, to be able to evaluate them, we, we need to have some kind of principle that allows us to evaluate them. And but you need you need hindsight. You need hindsight to be able to 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 do it that way around. And 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 we can't plan on the basis of hindsight. So 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 I'm not sure how useful that way of thinking is. It, it to me it makes much more sense to say, well, what can we have? What do we have a consensus about that we want right now? And and we do have a consensus right now that we want to avoid mass death and 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 suffering so then we need to ask ourselves well what kind of moral what kind of values do we do we do we need to promote that will lead that will lead us there this way around of, of, of doing it actually leads to something that we can do something practical with i think yeah i'm, I'm even i'm even more cautious than you ben i mean i i guess i just think we have this we have this this risk that we're that seems worth exploring about moral machines and then the question is how to how to make the intuitive idea that there is this risk, how to how to get that to fly uh, in a way that doesn't involve committing to, for example, to a specific set of progressive values. Um, and so the way we do that is we say, well, look, you know, the basic idea is surely we can all agree that if we were to go from A to B in, in, in terms of 
changes in a, a set of moral values that people adhered to, where B uh, involved no no increase in human rights violations as compared to A, and at the same time included a massive reduction in suffering or likelihood of suffering and catastrophic uh, damage and, and harm, then sh surely everybody could agree that would be an instance of progress. And then all we need to do is say, okay, so we all agree that that would be an instance of progress. Now look, there are these mechanisms which suggest that that kind of progress might be impeded uh, if if those mechanisms take hold. And that's for the argument of the paper. I think that's all we need. We don't need to uh, commit any further than that, really. I mean, of course, if people are skeptics about moral value or, 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 or at all or, or moral progress at all, then we can't. Those people aren't going to be on board, even with that relatively uh, uncontroversial claim. But, you know, this is about as wide as we can draw it. Yeah, no, I think the way you formulated there sort of clarifies for me or makes sense to me. So, so it's not the case that this minimal principle of moral progress avoids all value commitments. It's kind of like a, a rhetorical challenge almost to the reader that but surely you agree on this as a yeah. basic set of values that we, but I suppose my other criticism then, and I know this is maybe a feature rather than a bug of the principle mm -hmm. is that it's kind of too abstract then mm. to be useful in terms of categorizing or understanding what, you know, what we need to do on a, on a concrete basis because yeah we can agree that we don't want mass suffering and we don't want human rights violations but the the devil then is in the detail you know what instances of mass suffering count which kind of rights do we include within the package of human rights that can't be violated you know what counts as a, as a significant violation of human rights uh, yeah there's a lot of tr you know in the human rights law and litigation there's lots of trading off of rights to some extent or balancing of rights against each other so yeah. There's a lot of challenges in practice when you go from that abstract minimal principle into on-the-ground reality. Absolutely right. I mean, that, that, that's obviously right. Um, I suppose the, our defense is the, the, what we're trying to do in the paper is, is not supposed to be able to address those kinds of concerns. What, the underlying idea is that if the moral values that people are guided by evolve in ways that substantially reduce massive suffering and aren't accompanied by the sorts of cost that it's quite natural to describe as human rights violations, then that's a case of moral progress. Surely anybody could agree that even if they don't agree on the details of which particular costs would are the ones that must be avoided, uh, you know, wh which human rights violations had to specify that. Um, now, our minimal principle might not have captured that idea perfectly accurately for some of the reasons that you've just given. Um, and of course, what it takes to capture it accurately in one person's view might well differ from what it takes to do so in another person's view. Um, but we can get our basic concern about machine morality going, I think, without having to get that right, because it's really about the underlying idea, not the details of the principle. Okay, so I mean, let's go then into the idea or the, I guess, the more empirical side of the argument, which is that machines do pose this impediment or potential impediment to moral progress. So maybe you could spell out why that might be, happen. The discussions around this notion of calcification of values and norms and deference. Like what are the actual mechanisms at play there, psychological mechanisms, and how robust do we expect those mechanisms to be? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd like to deal with the robustness issue uh, first, uh, because um, I think it's incumbent on every social scientist right now to, to admit that um, uh, claims based on social science are hardly ever very robust. 
you know, the, the, the social sciences as a whole is having a bit of a well-deserved uh, crisis of confidence be, be, because we, you know, we, we know about various mechanisms that, that psychological mechanisms that exist but then they don't always replicate when we ca carry out new studies to try and, and demonstrate uh, that again their 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 existence uh, but i i think that problem's perhaps exaggerated but my main concern with with the robustness of any prediction made on the basis of of of, of social science is that um everything's so complicated and there are so many mechanisms involved that for every particular um, effect that you predict. So, for, for example, in this case, we're predicting that that if you instantiate moral values in machines, that might uh, um, slow down progress. Um, you could pr perhaps think of a mechanism that that uh, um, operates in the opposite direction. I'm, I'm deliberately undermining myself now because because I want to be honest and because I, I I'm going to come to the precautionary principle in in in, in the end, which I, I think rescues this anyway. But um, so to, to take a great example from uh, environmental psychology, there's something called spillover. So positive and negative spillover is is if 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 you are in, have already performed some environmentally friendly uh, uh, behaviour, positive spillover is when that increases the the chance that in future you will create uh, you will carry out another environmentally friendly behaviour. Whereas negative spillover is when when you've performed a, a environmentally friendly behavior that reduces the chance that you'll carry it out in in future so and the, these both exist and if you look at a meta analysis what they'll find is that is it, what it finds is that they both def, both factors uh, mechanisms definitely exist um in one kind of circumstance you're more likely to observe positive spillover in another circumstance you're more likely to observe negative spillover and thus it becomes very challenging to predict exactly what's going to happen but coming back to more directly answer this specific question, we do have these mechanisms such as confirmation bias, such as um, a tendency for people to rely on machines. That, so so that, that's another thing that, that's uh, somewhat separate from confirmation bias, but it's a well-known effect with things like autopilots. Uh, and so, so there, there are a number of uh, very serious uh, um, aviation accidents, for example, that, 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 that are thought to be uh, have occurred where um, a pilot um, could have uh, rescued the situation, but but didn't because they'd relied too much on on, on the autopilot. So 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 we know that when um, uh, when machines can solve problems for us, so that we don't have to, we tend to come to rely on them. We know especially that if the machines are giving us results that we instinctively and in, intuitively trust because they, they they chime with our own intuitions which can often be lazy and wrong uh then then we'll trust them even more uh, and so we can't social science can't say for sure that the 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 the, the uh, calcification of value like stagnation is definitely going to occur because everyone comes to um rely on on on, on the output of the moral uh, uh, machines but there's a serious risk that that might occur and because we so badly need uh moral progress with with regard to the environment because that the, the you know potential catast catastrophe that that's already underway is is, is 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 such a problem we think simply that people should be very careful uh before continuing to 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 uh along this this route of of, of building moral machines which people may come to rely on yeah, I mean, so 
don't know where I want to go next in the questions, though, whether I want to follow the outline that I had before. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question then is, let's say we accept that there is some kind of, uh, well, yeah, sorry, actually, the, the one question I want to ask, and this isn't, again, necessary to the argument in the paper, but I'm just curious in general. So if we look at things about, let's say, automation bias, the, the tendency to defer judgment to machines, do, is there any evidence or, or experiments or looking at it, trying to disentangle the underlying causes of that effect is it is it some kind of like cognitive laziness is it because we want to avoid taking responsibility for ourselves so for example i will often defer to the decisions of other people because i don't want to take responsibility for something it's not because i necessarily agree with what they're doing but i just don't want to impose that risk or burden on myself uh, do we uh, it's not uh, so there could be different underlying causes of the deference do we this, disentangle this, those things yeah there's, there's lots. So you, you just raised a, a, another one, uh, another potential one, which, which is uh, sometimes referred to in the literature as moral outsourcing. When when people have a um, a, a difficult decision to, to, to make, they 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 like to um, outsource that situation, that 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 choice, and that's often seen, for example, in in religious contexts. But there's a really interesting paper that that, that examines how even non-religious Jews like to go to rabbis. Uh, to to uh, get help with their with their moral decisions uh, because they they find the decisions hard to make themselves and they and they'd like someone else uh, to 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 make it to make the decision for for them so that there there are many and, and an even broader general principle of of cognition and and this is this is uh, one of the things that explains habits and 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 heuristics is that you know thinking sort of taking an evolutionary perspective for a moment thinking takes a lot of energy right the brain uses 20 percent of the body's blood sugar so so um evolution should and has designed people to do as little thinking as possible <laughs> so um that's why we have mechanisms like habits which is basically defined as um when when you use your you you adjust your current behavior simply according to previous behavior to save you having to uh, make the the decision again, which which would be literally costly in terms of uh, energy because thinking is blood sugar, and uh, and habits and, and and also other heuristics which are ways of of taking shortcuts to to use much simpler cognitive mechanisms than you'd necessarily. And need need to, to to do a proper job of of, of fully rationally making the the, the decision. The, if you if you study cognition, like the the human brain is full of such mechanisms for simplifying, for relying on external sources of information, for relying on on personal intuition, for re relying on personal habits, rather than thinking carefully about what all the different consequences of any given action is are going to be, and and and. Uh, making the decision on, on the basis of that careful assessment and and machines fit right into that they they, they uh yeah yeah so i mean just kind of simplify it seems that there's kind of maybe three potential factors at play here one is this general phenomenon but the, the cost of cognition and the need or the kind of efficiency heuristic that we have that 
if we can get away with it, we won't think for ourselves. We'll just outsource that cost. And then there's maybe the, the fact that we kind of like what the machines are doing. So we just defer to that or follow that anyway. It, it matches our current values or preferences. And then there's also the, um, in some cases, the decisions are so difficult or morally fraught or something like that, that we just don't like to have the mental burden or the moral burden of making those kinds of, of choices for ourselves. So as you say, kind of machines slot in very comfortably to that. You might, yeah, sorry, go on. You might, you might be able to disentangle that last one into two separate things. So on the one hand, there's the kind of moral ownership point that you made, you know, sometimes it's just responsibility is a weighty thing and it's, it's, it's quite welcome if something else will take it off you. Um, especially when, um, big things are at stake, you know, harm and so forth. Um, but the other is there's a kind of, uh, there's a, a kind of moral self-interest. Um, so you, you want to be able to see yourself as doing good things. And so if something, uh, as with the rabbi, you know, it's not just that you want somebody else to take the decision. You want somebody else to take the decision who's kind of morally approved, because then you can tell yourself you're doing something that's morally approved without having to think too hard about whether it really is. Um, and so, so that so the, the kind of like what you're doing, uh, like what the machine's doing side of things has a has a moral counterpart, um, which yeah. you see in greenwashing, right? Greenwashing is a really nice example of this. When uh, I, I was watching the football uh, the other night and I saw that Qatar, Qatar Airways, I think it is, has a fly greener um, advert going around at the moment. You know, it's just basically contradiction in terms. Um, and But you can see how, you know, so, somebody on the one hand, if I wanted to fly, that would be, um, it, it would be, it, it would serve me um, not to have to take the responsibility because somebody else has sort of looked after the carbon emissions. So there's the, there's the sort of, oh, good, I'm not the one who's responsible. But there's also the, oh, good, I'm doing the right thing because, you know, somebody else has said, um, somebody, somebody has done some research and has decided that this is a green thing to do. And so now yeah. I'm, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do the research myself. Um, so that's, the, the, there's two elements in that, I think. Greenwashing is a great example, and, and greenwashing works so well be precisely because of, of, of many of these cognitive biases. And people do want to think of them, themselves as green, and uh, because they do have values already that that that, that, that relate to that. But it, it can take as little as just a company saying, "Buy this product; it's green," and and for people to just accept that because it's it's convenient for them to do so. Yeah, I mean that second sense of of you know you you want the decision to be made by somebody who's morally approved or have some kind of moral legitimacy to it. That that's interesting to me because, and I come at this from you know an academic background or literature which is replete with people who are criticizing machine morality. Right. So like one of the debates that I have been semi involved with is the use of sentencing algorithms for prisoners. So you know trying to predict the likelihood of recidivism and using this as a criterion for judging whether somebody should be retained on bail or released from jail. There's different ways in which these systems are used. And there's been a huge amount of work on the potential biases in those systems, whether they reinforce racial prejudices or structural injustices in the criminal justice system already. And mm -hmm. I, my sense is that a lot of that controversy has resulted in a kind of moral illegitimacy to the deference to those algorithms. So the people involved in the criminal justice system now think that maybe they shouldn't 
defer to those systems. They should kind of use their own judgment or assessment of, of the evidence. Like whether that's better or worse is a larger question. And there is some kind of empirical evidence to suggest that this is happening already. So I had a former guest, Angel Christine, who does work on the ethnography of algorithms, and she's done some studies of courts in the US that suggest that because of the controversy, people just won't defer to these systems anymore. So even though we have these kind of general generic psychological mechanisms at play, and they're probably always a risk of deference, it is something that we can modulate in, mm-hmm. in the right context. If, this, if there's a sufficient amount of controversy about the legitimacy of a machine's moral decision-making, we might mitigate or reduce that deference to machines, right? So that seems right, but remember that the point is not, or the point we're trying to make in the paper is not that values that are already regarded as problematic will get coded into moral machines and then calcify, but the values that are not regarded as problematic at the moment of encoding will get coded into moral machines and then calcify. So the example you give, you're right that people can be vigilant, but they're made vigilant by by it's being drawn to their attention that values that they they profess are not being served appropriately by the the the, the algorithms or, or the machines in question and of course in pe- people in some roles are going to be especially alive to that um precisely because the decisions in question are very obviously morally freighted so sentencing decisions that's a really good example of a very obviously morally freighted um decision and the people who take them or ratify them or, or inspect them are of going to give them very, very careful consideration. But um, in lots of other contexts, that's not going to be true. And in any case, the the, the problem or the, the sort of the, the wide abstract problem that we're interested in is a problem that um, prevailing moralities uh, are going to get calcified, not that uh, not the moralities regarded at the time as problematic are going to get calcified. That's a, that's obviously been a, um, a, a worry that, um, that, that the people working on algorithmic fairness are very much alive to. But I don't think that our, the concern we're raising in this paper is quite the same as that. Yeah, I mean, so that's a fair point. And I mean, that was kind of the other question that arises from this is to sort of spell out the argument that you have in a bit more detail, which is, okay, let's accept that there's this deference to machine moral decision making. What's the reason for thinking that this will actually really threaten moral progress in a way that is concerning? And I guess that links into the, you know, Will this threaten to result in mass suffering and human rights violations or something like this? Um, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, I mean, Ben Ben can present the the evidence, but the basic <laughs> picture is that once users do trust moral machines, because the kinds of biases and unfairnesses that they would repudiate don't seem to be reproduced by those machines, then at that point there's this range of psychological and institutional processes and incentives that we describe in the paper which kind of enter, they, they begin to operate and sl- the, the, the machines and the decision making by those machines gets becomes written into the framework within which we act and gets presupposed by other parts of that framework. And so they become l- relatively less accessible to the kind of uh, interpersonal interaction that we think is a crucial mechanism in moral evolution. So as I said, I don't, I just don't work on the relevant literature, so I don't know those processes in detail, but that's the, that's the big picture. So I, I, I'd like to address another aspect of, of your question, John, which was like you, you, you asked the question, why, um, why, why is it such a problem? Why do we say that encoding uh, current morality is likely to, to, to be such a threat to the kind of progress that we, the, that we say we need? And, and I, 
I think that um, I'd, I'd like to take building and, and planning regulations again as, a, as an example. Um, so, you know, currently in, in the United Kingdom, where me and, 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 and Tom are both based, you know, the, the <clears throat> building and planning regulations just are, are, are terrible. Like they're a catastrophe from an environmental perspective. You're, you're still allowed to build houses that, that um, you know, are, are nowhere near zero carbon. And um, that's 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 not a, a huge political problem. It's it's not a huge political problem. It's not something that that you know most people are out on the streets protesting about. Uh, you know, but they should be if they were thinking long term in in terms of the the environmental implications of of continuing to build large numbers of buildings using like you know a lot of uh, steel and concrete that and 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 that are going to have lifetime uh, emissions that are also large because you know they're not even insulated properly because you still don't have to do that right so if we instantiate something similar to current building and planning regulations or even something just a little bit more uh, improved than current building and planning regulations into some kind of automatic system that that that, that processes a, a, a building or planning application to say, you know, should this be allowed to be built or not, taking into account all the things that apparently we're supposed to be taking into account, you know, on the one hand, for example, CO2, on the other hand, the needs for houses, um, for people to live in. It's it's going to replicate the, 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 the current, uh, you know, catastrophe that, that's already ongoing. So you make a comment in the paper about the, and this kind of links to this idea, is do machines threaten the right kind of moral progress? That the history of moral progress is the history of hard-fought struggles by those who succeed in persuading the majority to adopt an initially minority view. So maybe you could just explain to me, so the concern is that machines will somehow lessen or dampen this potential for the minority to persuade the majority to change their view? Is that the the concern? Like, how is that? So even if people defer in general, isn't there still a possibility of these kind of moral revolutionaries or leaders to come in and say, well, look, you're all getting it wrong and succeed in persuading people to, to change their view? Well, I mean, yeah, that can always happen. And we <laughs> we have to hope it's going to it's going to happen some more. But um, from the perspective of the environment, that's the argument in the paper. But um, uh the more that moral morality has been outsourced to machines the the less potential there is for 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 the, the this to happen and and i mean that that's just based on all the points we've already made about things like you know confirmation bias and 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 um habit following and 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 def deference to machines or uh, and uh not wanting to take responsibility etc etc but none, none of that is ever guaranteed to happen we simply argue that 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 uh, the more we outsource to machines the less uh discourse there will be of of, of the type that leads to uh to, to progress and it it's important to, to remember that when we're, we're not arguing necessarily that this the kind of discourse that leads to progress is necessarily particularly rational that that's that that's a that that, that that's a, an easy misunderstanding of our, our work i think Ar arguing that moral progress uh, occurs uh, because minorities 
persuade majorities, which is we 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 believe the case. That doesn't necessarily mean that they persuaded them with reasoned arguments. Um, in many cases, uh, in fact, reason like this is bad news to philosophers, I know, but reason is is <laughs> one of the worst ways to uh, persuade anyone of anything. The the way if you look at the psychology of, of persuasion and how people change their views. They change their, their views essentially because of examples set by people they trust. Um, so the, the social psychology of it is, is you know, that the even the best argument in the world, if it comes from someone who's who's part of a distrusted social outgroup, you know, you're, you're not uh, you're probably not going to be swayed. But but if 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 someone who's part of your social in-group uh, perhaps as an authority figure in your social in-group starts setting a new example, you're you're more likely to fall into line. And those are the kinds of um, processes which, which uh, lead to moral progress. And that the, that, by the way, is is one of the reasons uh, for for another argument we make that we haven't yet come to, which is that you're likely to have problems also if you program the machines to uh, be uh, already progressive. Because if, if the machines are, are, are far ahead of where the people already are, then they won't have these mechanisms of persuasion uh, which, are, which are available to humans because those mechanisms of persuasion aren't about providing sensible reasoned arguments by and large. Those mechanisms of persuasions are about you know, being in, in the social in-group, uh, being able to actually do the thing yourself you know, which is also not something a computer can do because it's it's not a person. Can yeah. I come back? Sorry, can no, I come back ahead, to John. one of the examples you gave, uh, John? I thought uh, there's a really nice way to to sort of illustrate this in in terms that feel maybe more familiar. So you talked about the the, the burden of responsibility, and I suppose one what, a way to think about the concern here is that um, it, it, when you bear the burden of responsibility, you have to answer for what you're doing. And that that is what the burden is, right? It's it's having to answer for the act. And when you get to outsource it, you don't have to answer for it anymore. And one way of thinking about the the risks associated with moral machines is that if everybody can outsource responsibility for various outcomes, then nobody's answerable for those outcomes, not in the same way. And surely the mechanisms of moral progress include uh, people interpersonal interactions in which the idea that people are answerable for the things that are happening are right at the forefront of the of the interaction and so um insofar as moral machines enable us to outsource and shift responsibility in the kind of ways that you were describing and and the, these mechanisms suggest they might then a very obvious locus of moral development um, or, or evolution of moral values is just stripped away it's just can't, it can't happen there. So even if you do get these kind of moral progressives and these these revolutionaries, they who, whom are they confronting about what? It's much harder because the responsibility is now either not there at all or just much more diffuse. Yeah, no, I think that so that's an interesting point. And I yeah, I, look, I I agree with what Ben is saying that a, it's not rationalistic. And an example setting is a more useful way of moral persuasion, and that seems to be mm -hmm. true even in like leading examples of historical moral, moral revolutions like again the, the gay rights example people as part of that movement would say that they didn't really succeed in getting more conservative people to accept or embrace the idea of you know decriminalization initially and then ultimately legalization of marriage because of their arguments 
that were mm. persuasive or uh, columns that they wrote or opinion pieces that they wrote. What changed is that people encountered homosexual couples or whatever that they accepted or that they um, respected. And that's yeah. what kind of got them to change their, a lot yeah. of their attitudes. And, and there's other historical case studies of this too. And so, yeah, the, the point I was really just getting at is it's still possible in principle for these exemplars or moral revolutionaries to come along and change things in the world in which there's lots of machines, but it's dampened down or lessened to some extent. And yeah. Again, yeah, and I guess then you also add to this the sort of like existential emergency that we're facing in relation to the environmental crisis that, that we can't rely upon this haphazard way of right. gaining moral progress, right? Yeah. Okay, so let, let's turn to the, the next question, which is the, the issue, like, why can't we program the machine to be progressive in some way? Why, why isn't that a solution to the problem? Okay, we're, we're aware of the problem. Let's try and factor it into the design of the machine now. Well, so we, we, we discussed this in the paper a little bit. So, I mean, there are two problems. Um, one is just the one that we've already talked about much earlier on, which is that there's no particular privileged set of progressive values that we can identify as the solution. So, our, you know, the principle of progress, which helps us to class, which, which is just sufficient to classify something as moral progress, doesn't tell you what particular set of values um, you would need to uh, to develop in order to achieve that progress. So no particular progressive set, set of progressive values has a special claim to be favoured, which means that any particular set is inevitably going to reflect some particular outlook. And that's going to bring with it a bunch of problems of illegitimacy as a result. So familiar problems of, you know, the, 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 the Silicon Valley engineers outlook being the default one. Um, and anyway, just at the sort of more philosophical and abstract level, freezing the values one step forward isn't obviously a solution to the general problem about moral progress, even if it's a solution to problems with prevailing implicit values now. Um, the second problem is it has to do with various psychological phenomena, which Ben can talk about. Um, so I'll, yeah. I'll leave that to I you. Mean, yeah, I mean, we, we, we touched on them already when we were talking about how moral progress typically occurs. And, and I made the point that the, these kinds of uh, processes of setting example, for example, which is, which is very important, just can't apply to um, uh, machines. Uh, I, I think uh, I think machines are in the unfortunate position, probably, where where the the balance of the psychological evidence suggests that people will trust them too much if if they uh, agree with them, and tr and and trust them very little if they don't agree with them. Uh, and there's 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 a number of specific mechanisms that that we argue in the paper might kick in. So an example is do good a derogation. So so this is a a, a known uh, f phenomenon that, that that occurs in a variety of contexts where people um, uh, take, have an active dislike to, to to people who set themselves up as as being more progressives. And actually, we like we don't need machines to have this as a, as a problem. You know, this is already a major problem uh, in the environmental movement. And what, one of my favourite uh, papers uh, on environmental psychology is is called "Why Vegans and Like Recyclists Might Be Bad." For the environment, because these are two uh, the, these are two uh, groups who who have a tendency to be perceived. You know, whether sometimes they set them up th themselves up this way, sometimes they don't 
set themselves up this way. But 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 whether or not they do, they, they have a tendency to be perceived as taking a moral high ground in, in, in a way which is seen as a threat um, to people who, who, who aren't there themselves. And, and, and so do, do good a derogation takes a, a variety of, um, of, of forms. And there's some there's some really interesting work from uh, experimental economics where, where people look at how who punishes and and, and why and and, and the, there's some some crazy paradigms where that have been set up to to investigate how um people will want to punish people who uh, other third parties who cheat in economic games and what they sometimes find is that they actually punish more the people who 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 show the most moral exemplary behavior uh, uh, presumably b- because they, they they resent the fact that, that that they're setting themselves up as as moral exemplars and and machines again might be particularly prone to, to to some of these problems because they don't have the things that that, that humanize they don't have the the the, the, the things um that, that that make them part of uh you know the, the, perhaps the trusted in group for example that that can diffuse some 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 of those problems but i do think i mean i i think we should take a balanced approach here and and, and, and acknowledge that, that that those kinds of arguments you know there there are arguments on the other side and i do respect some of the work by other philosophers who who have argued that that um there might be some contexts where we can set up um uh, machines to help us be progressive by making progressive uh, recommendations and i think there might be some contexts where that maybe might work but but i i think that so far that the reasons why that uh why that maybe won't work i haven't been given nearly enough attention in the literature yeah i mean i think that potential asymmetry is fascinating i'd like to see more kind of work on that I mean, to, as you say is it that we over defer to them or, or kind of when they match our values but then are more kind of visceral in our rejection of them mm. if they don't match our values and actually yeah. the, you know, the earlier example that i had of, of the sentencing algorithms that may be a context in which you see that kind of visceral rejection when it doesn't match your values playing out right. to some extent anyway uh, and also actually it was like the reaction last year to the um <laughs> you know the uh, the mutant algorithm yeah the, the yeah what am I, what am I trying to say? Example. The A-level algorithm, yeah. Um, yes. yeah. For, for listeners outside the UK that who maybe don't know what that was, that was um, uh, the uh, exams got cancelled, right? 2020 uh, for for uh, for obvious reasons, and um, uh, how? But school leavers need a grade, you know, so they can apply to university. How are you going to do it? And uh, basically, they used a computer algorithm and. I mean, that's the only time I'm aware of where, where a computer algorithm has, has led to large, angry demonstrations in 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 the streets. Uh, but, and 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 I, I, it's been argued, and I think I agree that no matter what uh, results that algorithm had had a, a, a applied, there was there was going to be deep dissatisfaction because it was going to be perceived as 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 unfair that a that a computer had 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 made uh, the, the decisions that affected people's lives in, 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 in so 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 strongly yeah I mean, it is worth noting that in ireland uh, we had a similar situation where we had predictive grades and because the uk moved first in this we saw the controversy there and adjusted the process a little bit in response to that 
And there, there was generally kind of broad acceptance of the results given. And there were some cases that were brought against it. But it, I, I, like one of the things that happened is that privileged schools did worse in Ireland. So people that came from schools that traditionally are fee-paying schools and would have higher results, they seem to have done marginally worse than they would have done on the historical record. And so there was a kind of a an inequality or anti-inequality bias in in the algorithm that seems to have made it more generally acceptable but rejected by these kind of elite schools so anyway yeah just a, a maybe there's some kind of cross-cultural differences and things that we can learn from that uh wanted to i don't know if you feel like you've said enough about the urgency of all this in relation to the environmental crisis but if you if you want to say a bit more you can but the the last question i wanted to ask which i may as well just ask now as well is you know what what can we do about this then? So if, if there is this issue around moral progress and we need to ensure moral progress, how can we do this? If okay, we're not, So deferring to machines or using machine morality isn't the solution. What could be the solution? So I think it's worth saying something briefly about the, the environmental crisis because it, it, we haven't really connected the dots of the argument of the paper and that, which is, so, so we give this as an illustration. So as I guess we all know, we're seeing anthropogenic climate change. We're seeing astonishing rates of ecosystem destruction and biodiversity loss. And not coincidentally, we're probably in the midst of the sixth mass extinction. Um, there's only been five. Um, and this would be the first since the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. So this has all been super clear for decades now. Um, and we can still avoid some of the most catastrophic consequences of all this if we act now and we act fast. But if our values were to evolve in ways that induced the behavior change necessary to avoid them, then that looks as if it would be an instance of moral progress as classified by the minimal principle. So this is this is what that, that brings together the kind of philosophical and the practical aspects. And it does seem that evolution in those implicit values is at least in part what is needed because there are these there's this range of behaviors that many people in richer parts of the world at any rate see as morally unproblematic, but that are taken together major contributors to the environmental crisis. So if AI and moral machines develop quickly and political will to address the crisis continues to develop as slowly as it has been doing, then we might find that the convergence of these two factors yields the calcification concern we've been talking about as a huge practical problem for us right now. So that's that's why we talk about the environmental crisis as, as an illustration, um, because it, uh, avoiding the, the catastrophe that is currently unfolding would count, we think, as uh, moral progress in this uncontroversial sense as classified by the um, by the minimal principle. And moreover, it looks like uh, the kind of development of values um, that, that we need, the kind of development of values that we, we suggest moral machines might inhibit in order to avoid the crisis. So um, so it's a perfect illustration of the, of the, of the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, so that's that's why it's there. Yeah, I mean, so, and this is maybe just repeating what you said. So, like the the gist of it is that to res- to deal with the environmental crisis, we need moral progress that fits with, as you say, the minimal principles. So, the last thing on earth we need right now is the calcification of existing moral values, exactly, which is exactly. what moral machines will or could lead to, based on yeah, the I mean. Paper, yeah. We've got to make sure we don't overclaim here. You know, we we, we just say this is a risk that hasn't really been distinguished as far as we know in the literature and deserves to be taken seriously. We don't we don't attempt to assess the magnitude of the risk. Um, And and I I don't know quite how I would do that. But um, but it does seem like a distinct kind of risk to to, to be popped in the box alongside all of the other things um, marked risk of AI. 
And any any thoughts on on as you, I mean, you just said you you don't know exactly what to do, but it, it's just one thing that occurs to me that the whole argument within the paper kind of reminded me of was it's a pair of other Oxford-based philosophers, Julian Savalesco and uh, Ingmar Persson, who wrote this book, but unfit mm-hmm. for the future about the mismatch between our moral values and the risks that technology and is posing to us in the future, and they were arguing for like systematic moral enhancement of citizens. Any thoughts on like what the solution might be to this issue? It, I mean, I'd personally be all in favor of a systematic uh, moral enhancement, you know, as long as it doesn't take the form of you know uh, compulsory re-education camps or anything like that. But um, uh, I, I just think it's the practicalities that that that, that me and Tom uh, are mainly cons- concerned of because I. I think that some of the arguments that that are made by by by, by that sort of camp, if if I can say it like that, don't take sufficient um, uh, don't take sufficiently in, in, into account the the likely backlash against uh, progressive um, uh, uh, machines. And uh, and I know they ha- they they talk about different uh, the potential ways of of uh, of um, achieving uh, more moral enhancements, but but that this doesn't necessarily apply to. So, but I think uh, actually another thing that I'd like to add that, that I think sort of as a, as, a, as an environmental psychologist I'd like to add we, we we've we've been talking sort of rather vaguely about um, uh, you know different moral values and 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 how they may or may not be sufficient to to avoid catastrophe i think i think it's useful maybe to reflect a a little bit about what those values actually are and also it's interesting to reflect about the fact that there is a there's a big gap between um people's explicit values and and the values that are actually uh uh, instantiated in in their behavior that the so if, if you ask so a good example right now is everyone's really concerned about the environment so if you, it, there's there's polls all the time that show that people really are you know really uh, quite worried, um, but most people don't do anything about it, and 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 that may in some cases be because they don't know what to do or they don't feel they can do do anything. But but I think it's also because um, their internalized values, that the more intuitive, implicit values that actually determine their behaviour, don't necessarily lead to um, uh, the kind of behaviours that they explicitly in, endorse, and, and one specific example of, of this is um, it, 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 the two different kinds of uh, values that the environmental psychologists will, will often talk about, which would be altruistic versus biospheric values. So altruistic, I, th- I, th- I think I don't need to tell it, 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 you what altruistic values are, but it's, suffice to say that they're f- may, generally taken as focused on people, whereas biospheric values are where you assign value inherent value to the natural world and that there's a whole set of of cognitive problems associated with with them um, relating to the environment which means that if you ha- even if you have strong altruistic values that won't necessarily lead to environmental problems because um don't forget you're you're uh, operating a lot of the time according to these kind of heuristics these simplify this these sort of simple cognitive rules that um, that, that determine our everyday behaviour, and and those rules don't see that it's a problem to dot to drive to the shops and buy a steak from an altruistic perspective because it's not obvious how 
uh, it's not obvious to, to the, the kind of intuitive moral processing uh, um, uh, cognitive processes that, that, that we have that, that either of those activities uh, is, a, is a problem for other people. But if we um, if we have more deeply in, internalized biospheric values, which more directly uh, are connect uh, more directly connected to to problems uh, c causing harm to the environment in, independently of whether or not we can see the knock on consequences for people. There is uh, empirical evidence that shows that these biospheric values are um, the, the, the ones that are more successful in, in, in promoting um, uh, like the kinds of behavior that we need to see more of. Yeah, I mean, and all that is very so, sorry, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, go on. No, it's interesting. I don't know why this occurred to me when you know, I was listening to that, but um, there's an artist called Moon Ribas, I think is her name, who has some um, RFID chip that's implanted in her body somewhere that every time there's an earthquake, it's linked to some earthquake recording uh, mm -hmm. computer program that it vibrates so she feels the earthquakes every oh, time nice. they occur. Wow. So maybe you could do something similar, like every every increase in part per million of carbon or something, there's a, an electric shock administered to you. Or every time you do something that, I don't know, that you have some deeper connection to <laughs> the harms, that's the solution to the problem. But that's maybe a conversation for another time. And the ethics of that would be interesting too. You you asked, I mean, you asked what what can we do? And you, and you suggested the Savalescu in person argument. And let me say, I, don't, I think that there are, I have doubts about it that go beyond the practical um, that particular suggestion that we we can use moral enhancement technologies but um what we can do is try to get out in the streets and do all of the things do use all of the mechanisms of moral progress that we say are uh you know tend to be sidelined by or, or risk being sidelined by moral machines so the, the, the kind of obvious thing to do is to try and be exemplars to 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 protest to do all of the various things that constitute trying to uh trying to promote moral evolution um and that's indeed i think that's how that's how ben and i came to know each other in the first place exactly yeah on the streets that's where we need to be thanks john that was fun Thank thanks you, john. john okay yeah, and that, that information will be in the bio at the start as well that I record. So, okay, I think we'll leave it uh, there. So thanks for joining me for this conversation. That was great.